Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, Al Murray, a.k.a. The Pub Landlord. On his New Sky History series, Why Does Everyone Hate the British Empire? Saoirse Ronan and Paul Meskell team up in the sci-fi-ish movie Foe and I talk to its writer and director, Gareth Davis and Ian Reid. After what seems like an incredibly long lead-in, Martin Scorsese's latest movie, Killers of the Flower Moon, finally arrives in cinemas. And we tell you whether it's worth the admission price. Plus, Phil Jupitus chats about his favourite movie. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. I have too much on the show this week that I have to get rid of you know, normal preambles. I was going to tell you about how I put together a trampoline for one of my children this week and it took me five hours. I was going to tell you about the abject sadness I shared with most of the nation at Ireland being beaten by New Zealand. And I was also going to tell you about the abject disappointment I experienced watching the new Frasier on Paramount Plus. But I don't have time for any of that because we have such a busy show. Now, Al Murray, a.k.a. the pub landlord, is a very, very funny man. And he's also very interested in history, as you may know from that character, the pub landlord. And he is back with, I suppose, his third uh, history theme show, Al Murray, Why Does Everyone Hate the British Empire? Now, in this series, he goes to Jamaica, Australia, South Africa and India. And in each location, he's shown around by a comedian, a popular comedian from each of those countries. And he looks at how the British Empire has, I was going to say benefited, but done largely a disservice to most of those countries. There possibly are some benefits to what they did as well. And I got to talk to him about this series, which is on Sky History from October the 23rd. It's the full series. The four episodes are available on your Skybox on Sky History from Monday the 23rd. So I was delighted to talk to Al Murray earlier in the week. So Al, you know, let me start in the slightly shallower end and the lighter (laughs) end of things. I've done a few kind of radio shows overseas where we're making documentaries and things and it's great because you get to go and work in these places and see the place as as well as doing a gig and I wonder that must be part of the appeal of this that you, you get to go to like Jamaica, Australia, India and South Africa as, as well as doing something very serious. Well yeah I mean d- d- there's definitely that that element John that, that, that you get to you, you know uh, it's quite a hard sell though for, for to the family you go well I've got to go to Jamaica this week I'm afraid I've got <laughs> I've got no choice they're making me fly to Jamaica or Australia or India or, or, or South Africa I, I, and the thing is is I've been to Australia quite a few times but I'd never been to the other sure. countries so that there is mm. that there, there is that um you know mad thing about my job where I get I get the opportunity to do something like that so yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. absolutely. However, um, the the way TV's made these days, we were we we were literally in and out of Australia in five and a half days, and uh, wow. And um, I'm you know I'm I'm not a spring chicken anymore. And I mean, twenty years ago, I'd have I'd have I'd have taken that firmly on the chin and gone, yeah, let load me up, let's do it. But but um, one or two one or two sort of jet lagged sleepless nights in in Sydney with long filming days. I mean, it it, it well, I'm not saying. You know, I'm not here to complain. We weren't down a coal mine, but it was a bit of a. It, mm. it, it, some of it kind of did me in because of because of the time differences and the journey times. You know. Sure, I hear that, and I get your family aren't terribly sympathetic when you go. No, I have to go bathe bit. in the Ganges. Exactly. <laughs> I'm really sorry, darling. Yeah. I, the, two weeks before Christmas, I have to go to Jamaica. What? It was like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, listen, in the slightly more serious end of the pool, you know, I'm aware that, you know, British identity at the moment is is up for discussion a lot. And it's probably a post-Brexit thing and maybe the government in charge. Who knows? So have you any reservations about wading into such a meaty topic and and contentious one as empire? No. No. Um, uh, uh, we keep being told as comedians that we're supposed to tackle difficult subjects. We keep being told this by 
usually by people who've got nothing to do with comedy. They, they loft, loftily <laughs> pronounce that we're supposed to tackle the difficult stuff. So here we are doing it, you know. And, and my, my mm. kind of view is, and if you don't like that, well, you shouldn't have asked us to do it. You shouldn't demand this of comedians, is, is, is my feeling. It's also just another, another voice to bring to it. The thing, and the thing that we really were determined to do was make sure we spoke to people from the countries we were talking around about, rather than just being a British guy swanning around going, I say, what's happened here? Mm. You know, because that would be, that would be, that would be, to be honest, the, the, the really worst approach. And in this country, a lot of the debate, there's two sides to the debate, basically. There's the people who, 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 who who say empire is the worst thing that ever could have possibly happened, full stop. And then you've got the people who try to sort of mitigate it and say, yes, but, you know, if you do a cost-benefit analysis and all that. And they don't talk to each other, really. They sort of lob rocks from opposite sides of the opinion pool. And then, mm. and they're very interested in it. And I don't really know, how, you know, how interested everyone else is, to be honest. And I sort of wanted to come in kind of being everyone else on this game. What, what, is, the, mm. what is the story here? What did happen? Because... Because, you know, the, the two ends of the argument are so entrenched. You could make up a programme going around going, oh, aren't railways wonderful? Or you could make, you could make a programme, you know, do, basically doing the precise opposite. So, so yeah. you know, we wanted to do something a bit different and to talk to people from those countries. You know, what do modern Jamaicans think about the British Empire? And it turns out they're not really thinking about it much at all. Yeah, yeah, that came across. And listen, not to blow smoke up your behind, but what I really liked about the show is the history is very well told. And I thought I knew a fair bit, but even like the Indian episode, it was very yeah. good to see how India became what it is today. But just for instance, on the Indian episode, like, yes. you know, you do come away feeling, or I did, just this is as a viewer, forget about me yep. interviewing you, that Empire, yep. in the case of India, was not on the side of the angels because, you know, the railway, which you point to, and you're the one who said this, really it was a way for the British to, you know, systemize plundering. And that's yeah. why they built the railway. And that yeah. comes across in them a lot, that they, these these things they did in these countries were really ways to help the British Empire as opposed to the natives, for want of a better yeah. phrase. Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. And and I think there was a kind of trickle-down idea that, you know, that, that, that you enrich yourself and, and you make the, the country somehow, as a result, ends up in the long run richer for it, if, if you see what I mean. That sort of trickle-down mm. economics idea, I think, is which, which, which after all, you know, is a, is a contested notion in itself. I mean, we, what I found that was really interesting, though, and uh, is that there isn't a one-size-fits-all story. Um, the, no. the four countries we went to, the, the, the story of empire there was wildly different in each of them. You know, in Australia, it's a settler colony with with people essentially pretty much unable to oppose what's happening because they're, they're technologically unable to match what the British are doing. And the British come up with all these sort of, you know, um, legal wheezes to, to essentially say that Aboriginal people don't exist. That couldn't be more different to India, where you have the pre-existing Mughal Empire, you have princes, you've you've states, basically, that the British then sort of... Um, come and do a corporate raid on, and end up end up running the whole thing through aggressive corporatism rather than rather than the you know it's completely different to the Australian story. And at the same time, in South Africa, you've got the British turn up. There's a pre-existing Boer colony, the it, it, and it's about how they play off, how they overpower the Boer colony, and the and, and the you know the African people who are there are kind of the meat in that sandwich rather than you know they're another part of the political scene rather than simply people being colonized like in Australia and then again in 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 Jamaica you've got a former slave colony and how it how that then pans out economically in 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 the wake of British trade and that you know those four stories couldn't be any more different so you can't yeah. go there's one British empire and and the, of course at the time the British empire was 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 um you know, run by people who thought that what worked in Canada would work in South Africa. And obviously mm. that's just silly. And, 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 yeah. and that was the thing that my eyes were really open to is how different the stories all were. Um, and and, and yeah. what the, drive, the drivers were all different in each of the stories. Yeah, a great man once said, you know, history's just a series of uh, conflicting narratives. It might have been me, actually. Yeah. But anyway, let's move on. Can, can I ask you this? I, 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 I like the idea of the comedians showing you around. That, that's a nice way in. But in South Africa, and I, I'm just wondering, and I don't want to hammer his name because I'm not great with names. L Luisio, Loisa is that Gola, how you yeah. say it? Loisa Loisa, Golo. Yeah. yeah. 
Laiso, in fairness to him and to you, he seemed kind of not cheesed off, but he wasn't really buying the empire thing. I thought, and, and it made right. for good TV. He was, he was kind of like, you know, I'm not buying this white man's burden nonsense. And I was talking to you about the Zulus and that's yeah. not how we thought of it. Like that was a great thing to include in the show, these comedians, yeah, particularly yeah. the one in South Africa, because he seemed a bit diffident about the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. He, he I mean, what was really interesting with Laiso is uh, I very much felt that, that, you know, so much of the debate in this country is, is, is sort of termed, framed in terms of how we should feel bad about stuff and, and what was it we were trying to do in the first place and, and all this. He does a, he, He's like, what, why am I there? Am I there to assuage my guilt? What's the point? You know, wh why are we mm. talking about this? And I thought mm. that he was absolutely fascinating to, to, to run into an attitude where it's kind of like, what are you talking about? Why are you talking about this <laughs> like this? What's this got to... And, and essentially, what's this got to do with me? And, I, and you know, mm. that, I think, actually encountering that attitude, because I did imagine it might be out there, because after all, one of the sort of d defences you get um, about about history is people go, it was a long time ago and it wasn't me. And the, and the thing is, is there's, there's an awful lot of British history where I do feel that, where I do if it wasn't me and it is a long time ago. So, you know, you, you, you how much, it's quite a reach to, to stick some of the things that happened 300 years ago on me, if you see what I mean, right? Mm, and yeah. his was the kind of, his was kind of the reverse of that, him going, what are you doing here crashing around? Why, you know, going on about this? What's this got to do with me? And I found that, yeah. I found that absolutely brilliant to encounter. Like, like a proper, yeah. like, like, a, like, like a, not a wake up call, but like, okay, so this attitude does exist and it is possible. You know, you know, like he so he wanted to talk about Arsenal, not about the, the British yeah. Empire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and, and, and you, you sort of think there's another kind of globalization, as it were. Yeah, that, that, that's the re, that's the current one. That's the one that people are living yeah. in, rather than the one that's like a reflection or a like a or a summary of of of, of the history that's gone before. And I loved, I loved, I loved encountering that. I absolutely loved yeah. it. And that you know, I came away having not just learned the history, but learned that you know. There are attitudes out there you can't you, 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 you can be surprised by, and that's exciting. Yeah. Listen, I mentioned before we came on air, I've been laughing along with you for a long time now. I love comedians, and I'm referring to your pub landlord ca character here, mm. who are, you know, as the Sopranos would say, you got some set of balls, my friends, who, who, who <laughs> say things and aren't too scared, like Ricky Gervais, Chris Rock. Yeah. And you have done that many times in the pub landlord. And here's the yeah. thing, I was scouring the internet last night, and I'm wondering, did I dream this? And you're the only person who can actually <laughs> clarify this, but I have a memory of you 20 years ago in Montreal at the Just for Laughs Comedy yes. Festival doing your bit as the pub landlord yep. and then you went to sneeze and blow your nose and you took out a handkerchief and it had the Canadian flag on it. Did I dream that or did you do that? Because it's no, not on I the internet. I definitely um, uh, did do that, yes. <laughs> excellent, <laughs> excellent. That, that, was, that was an amazing night because um, uh, uh, Bill Maher was on and there was a there right. was a debate about who should have to go on first, and oh God, I can't remember who the other comic was, but basically someone had seen me in in the club a couple of nights before and said, "I'm not going on after you. I'm not I'm not doing it." And you know, mm. you t and it's some a big American star, but I can't remember who it was. And, and you, you know, you you kind of like, oh, good, okay, I'll I'll, I'll buy that for a dollar. I'm happy with that. And um, and I was just doing. I did a. I was basically. I did a load of stuff about Americans that they absolutely loved. Right. And then yeah. I did something about, uh, then I blew my nose on the Canadian flag, right? <laughs> and of course, of course, th th then Bill Maher comes on and goes, God damn limeys, you know, we saved their ass in World War II and all this sort of thing. And you think, yes, the jokes are about nationalism um, uh, and uh, people being absurdly patriotic. Yes, well done for spotting that, yeah. Bill Maher. <laughs> so, yeah, I did do that. And, and, and what, was, what was interesting is some people, some people were outraged by it um, and plenty, plenty weren't. Um, but of course, the people who aren't, no one ever, no one ever asks their opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, I for one loved it as a, as a oh, twenty-two-year-old watching TV in Dublin. <laughs> Listen, our, our, our time is up, Al, but it's it's been the highlight of my week to talk to you and oh, continued success. It's my pleasure. Thanks very much, John. Al Murray there talking to me about why does everyone hate the British Empire? And that series is on Sky History from Monday, and and well worth a watch and a delight 
to talk to the very funny Al Murray, the man who blew his nose in the Canadian flag. I knew I hadn't dreamt it. Up next, Scorsese is back and we review Killers of the Flower Moon. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now I might have said this earlier in the year, but for many... This Friday is the cinema event of the year because Martin Scorsese's much-talked-about Killers of the Flower Moon arrives in cinemas. It will get a later release on Apple TV. I have seen it, but more importantly, arts journalist and film critic Chris Wasser has as well. Chris, hello, how are you? John, I'm very well, how are you? Very well, in studio. I can see the whites of your eyes. It's (laughs) wonderful. So, uh, much talk about this movie. I mean, any Scorsese movie is going to generate a lot of talk. This is talked about because it's been a while it's The Irishman was the last one it's also on Apple TV it's also about a very fascinating dark subject and it's three and a half hours long so without further ado what's going on in this one? Yeah that seems to be the big introduction with this film it's three and a half hours long we'll come back to that length in a moment what's happening in this film is that Scorsese is tackling a chilling complicated chapter in American history and uh, adapting the David Grant non-fiction bestseller from 2017 which uh, tells us about the Osage Native American murders in the uh, 1910s or 1920s um, but it focuses on a story by it brings us into the story through a Mr. Ernest Burkhart who, which is uh, the character played by Leonardo DiCaprio and he's returned from the First World War and you know he's he's not the same man you know and he's a little bit wobbly on his feet and he doesn't know what he's going to do now um, but his uncle uh, welcomes him back with open arms his uncle is William King Hale played by Robert De Niro and he tells him why his hometown in Oklahoma is looking a little different and the reason for that is because while the war was happening uh, the Osage people of Oklahoma that they, they discovered that there was oil beneath the lands that they had been allowed to settle in they had actually been moved and they settled in a land that was you know had tons of oil underneath it and as a result of this the Osage people are now the wealthiest people in America some of the wealthiest people in the world mm. and they run the show and mm. as a result of that you, you have white troublemakers from all over America coming in for their slice of the pie mm. and you also have a series of you know unsolved deaths happening around the area and some of them quite sinister some people have been shot to dead uh, some people have been stabbed other people are, 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 have perished as a result of this wasting disease what they all have in common is that they're all Osage people yeah. so clearly someone is conspiring to erase the Osage bloodline yeah. and no one would ever suspect William King Hale because he's a friend of the Native Americans but we know from the outset that this guy is the one to blame and he takes Ernest back from the war under his wing introduces him to one of the Osage people Molly played by Lady Gladstone and encourages their union because he wants all the money for himself so that sounds a little bit complicated but that's the basic setup of what we're dealing with in this very long film and that's very well put together and we should just say the Osage people are in a way not not that the the non-native americans are slaves but but the Osage people are ostensibly in charge yes and De, or DiCaprio's character is driving around Lily Gladstone character Molly so th- they have done well from the oil yes. let's say so that's a great description of it all so let's get straight to it then yeah. what did you think of it I like this a lot, and there is a lot of it. Uh, the big conversation, look, Scorsese, you know, you're seeing him everywhere because no one else involved in this film, or at least none of the key cast members can promote it for yeah. obvious reasons. Because You're not seeing him on screen time, unfortunately. You're not anyway. seeing him on screen time, but um, uh, one day. Yeah, <laughs> um, soon. But uh, yeah, so Scorsese has been tackling that question, you know, about its runtime because if, you know, if you look this up on Twitter, if you look it up on any social media, everyone's saying, oh, I'm going to wait until it's on Apple. We don't know when it's going to be on Mm. Apple yet. They actually partly funded the thing or I'm going to watch it in installments. The same way some people approach the Irishman. And for a while there, you could actually do that. Um, But I hope that doesn't, I hope the runtime doesn't deter people from seeing it in cinemas because we saw it in a cinema. We saw it on the biggest screen that you could, you could Mm -hmm. see it on, you know, in IMAX. And it is glorious to look at. It's a beautiful looking film. It's a beautiful film to listen to. We have the late Robbie Robertson providing another marvelous score. Uh, Almost the beating heart of the film because it kind of takes on, the the score is quite bluesy in parts, quite percussive, uh, kind of um, reminiscent of uh, Native American music. And also, you know, while that drum is beating away in the music, that we're building up to something. It gets a little bit louder, just a little bit steadier at a time. And then then when it stops, you know something bad is going to happen. So I quite like that motif. Um, there is no getting away from the fact, though, that there are probably parts in this film that didn't need to be in there. But like The Irishman, like some of the, you know, uh, even even like Goodfellas, which isn't even that long of a film, like some of the best Scorsese works, and I'm thinking of Wolf of Wall Street too, when you start to think, where would I cut it? What would I do that, you know, mm. the great Talma wouldn't do, yeah. you know, his editor? 
I don't know. I don't I know. know what I would take out of this. What do you trim off something that looks so wonderful and carries you so wonderfully? You see, it is very long, I found. But at no point was I bored. No. You know, what I really liked about it was, and you can tell me your thoughts on it was, Leonardo DiCaprio is brilliant. I wasn't sure what kind of guy he was for a long time. Right. I wasn't sure. You said he's wobbly. I wasn't sure if he was just wobbly or he was crooked or a mix of both. And I'm, there's, I may, maybe I'm still slightly confused about it, but I thought his performance was absolutely brilliant. I went with him all the way along. Yeah, I would slightly disagree on Leo. I think it's a very okay. good Leo performance, but I don't think it's top tier. Okay, wow. Um, and I think he's just, he's doing the best with the tools provided. But, and what I mean by that is, he's required to play the most unusual character in this film because yeah. in some scenes we get a sense that he really loves, adores and will do anything for Lily, you yeah. know, or for Molly, uh, Lily Gladstone's character. And he falls for her bef right before, you know, his uncle, William King Hill, basically says to him, I need you to mm. marry into this family and I need you to do these awful things and we won't give anything away. Uh, you can use your imagination. Mm -hmm. If you've been paying attention, you'll know what's going to happen in this film. Yeah. Um, but there is a sense that he loves her. But then there are things that he does that it's like, oh, okay, all he really cares about is money. All he really cares about is kind of distracting himself every day from yeah. probably the horrors that he saw yeah. in the war. And it's a tricky character. And it also requires uh, uh, Leo to um, pull a lot of moody faces. Yeah. He sort of like looks like this oversized school child who's been, <laughs> you know, given out to yeah. by by the principal, the principal being William K King Hale, yeah. every time he messes up. So it's a bit of a weird performance. It's it's kind of unintentionally comical in some scenes, but but he is very good. The stars of this film for me were Robert De Niro, who is delivering something the steadiest, most controlled performance he's had in years because you keep uh, waiting for that grandstanding moment. You keep mm -hmm. waiting for him to lose his kill. He doesn't, mm -hmm. but he still terrifies you. Yeah. You know that he's so sinister. You know that he yeah. can kill you with the look. Lily Gladstone, who's just the soul of this film, yeah. she can see through everyone mm -hmm. and she does an awful lot. Uh, you know, just She can steal entire scenes with her eyes. Um, and Jesse Plemons, Two yeah. hours into this film, John, Jesse Plemons shows up as an FBI investigator. Yeah. And it's actually worth um, noting that this was the role that Leo was originally supposed to play. Oh, interesting. But, but yeah. I can't imagine Leo popping up two hours into a Scorsese film. He has to be there all the time. But Jesse Plemons, like Lily Gladstone, he has an awful habit in everything he does of just walking into a room, doing very little, or at least you think he's doing very little, walking out and you're, and, and you're left there going, that was the best scene in the whole film. Yeah. And it's because of him. He's very good as the investigator. And this film is not about Cops and Roberts. It's, it, we, we don't need the, the good guys there all the time to remind us of who the bad guys are. But there is a turnaround around two hours in when, when, when you know, the bad guys start to kind of get what's coming to them. Yeah. That makes it, that, that gives the film a bit more of an edge. I quite yeah. liked when they, they showed up. Yeah, it gangstered up a small Yeah, it is. But it's, yeah. it's not Goodfellas or anything. But I agree with you about Jesse Plemons. He does this kind of gormless, yeah. I'm either really dumb or really smart. And I completely agree with you about De Niro. To be a scary villain without raising your voice, you know, is just a hard thing to do. And he does it absolutely brilliantly. It's a, it's a late career highlight, I I'd suggest. Oh, absolutely. So we get to the meat and potatoes of it. So much talked about movie. What are you going to say stars wise for Killers of the Flower Moon? I'm going to say a solid four. Again, mm -hmm. I don't know where I would cut. Uh, you know, parts of it are a little bit sluggish, uh, but at the same time, it's beautiful to look at. It's wonderfully performed. Uh, it's well told in a way that only Scorsese would do it. Yeah. I, I also should say we're not going to discuss the ending but it has one of the best final scenes in the Scorsese film that I've seen in years I was just so list, listeners can't see me go oh, I want but I was just going to ask you what did you think of the epilogue I loved it because yeah. there were arguments afterwards at the screening yeah. that I was at some people yeah. thought it was completely unnecessary that it talked about the story I think we'll discuss this at a later point John but yeah. I think Scorsese knows what he's doing it's quite clever it's quite funny and it's just a lovely postscript in a way that so many other filmmakers just kind of scramble to give us all this information and then this happened afterwards and this yeah. especially when dealing with a story Scorsese found a new way to do that and I, I love this absolutely and the idea that he's doing something so new and bold and modern yeah. at this point in his career like you just have to he's a genius did I say it did I just call a director a genius I think you did I think yeah. I did yeah. I'm also going to give it four stars because yeah. I, I, it's hard to fault you know it is I, I think sluggish is the wrong word long is all I can okay. say but you know long can be good Yeah. so that is four stars for Killers of the Flower Moon from Chris Wasser and also for me here's a clip it shows itself to you that Bill Smith didn't take the proper care of Minnie the way he could have to have her sick and die take her hen rights and her land that oil which you go to her sisters your wife well he's taking money that by rights you go to Molly The mother Lizzie. 
nothing but a cheat. She won't last. Most Osage don't live past 50. With these women dying, with how Osage suffer from illness, you have to make it the head rats come to you. A clip there from Killers of the Flower Moon. And Chris Wasser and myself gave it four stars. You know, you're sitting in a cinema in the IMAX, massive screen, watching a Scorsese movie. It's absolutely delightful. It really was. It is long, but it, it's worth it. It's worth it. I, I, I take one long Scorsese movie over two or three crap ones in the time you could have watched them. Now, something slightly different is another new release this week called Foe, which lands in cinemas this Friday, the 20th of October. And it stars our own Saoirse Ronan and Paul Meskel in a movie, as I say, called Foe, which is an exploration, I suppose, of marriage and identity set in a world that it's the future and possibly an ecological disaster or some disaster has happened and and crops are drying and all that kind of stuff. Hen and Junior are a husband and wife in this secluded piece of farmland in a farmhouse that's been in Junior's family for generations. And obviously, Saoirse Ronan plays Hen and Paul Meskel plays Junior. And their life that they're living is thrown into turmoil when this kind of uninvited stranger played by Aaron Pierre shows up, a guy called Terence, and explains that Junior, Paul Meskel's character, has been selected to serve on an orbiting space mission which is interesting. So he's going to be sent into space. He's been selected. Now, I'm not sure if I should say any more than that because it's a movie full of, I suppose, surprises or certainly one big surprise. And it does involve possible cloning and stuff like that. So I will leave it vague like that. Now, it's based on the best-selling novel of the same name by Ian Reid, who also wrote the book I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which was turned into a movie. And it's directed by Garth Davis. Garth Davis, you may know, directed Line, which was nominated for all sorts of Oscars, that movie starring Dev Patel. He also directed Mary Magdalene. He made a great uh, TV series with Jane Campion from a few years ago, set down down under Top of the Lake. Brilliant, brilliant series starring Elizabeth Moss and, as I say, co-directed by Jane Campion. So I got to talk to director Garth Davis and also the writer of the book, the novel, for Ian Reid, who co-wrote the screenplay. Listen, Garth, what I was going to say to you was, you know, it seems to me that there's, this is the type of movie that you could re-watch and get very different things out of it than the first time you see it. And I mean that as a compliment. I suppose, do you have to be very wary when you do interviews like this, or even when you're marketing the movie, not to reveal too much so people just come and enjoy it from the get-go? Uh... I guess I'm at the mercy of whoever is interviewing me um, because it is a movie you need to talk about. And once you've watched the movie, yeah. you unlock all of the all the truths. And um, and I guess it's a very fun thing to talk about. So I guess at some point we do just want to talk about it without having to worry. Um, yeah. So I guess yeah. I, I guess we just go wherever the conversation leads us and, um, you know, hopefully someone's keeping a close eye on what they publish and don't publish, I guess. <laughs> But you're yeah. right. It's, well, look, it's, we it, won't go anywhere. You're right. But but I but also I, I just want to say that, that you know the the movie's much more than the reveal. You know, it's even mm. if even if you do read a spoiler alert or something, I, I do think the film is rich enough for you to still enjoy it. There's so many layers to it. Um, so our, our film doesn't live and die on the reveal. It really it, doesn't. We never thought of it really as having some twist that we were trying to protect or anything. I mean, how, if, how people see it is kind of up to them. So we were kind of more interested in the in the story of the relationship, I think. Sure. And I mean, it, it's good in, in some sense that, that people are going to talk about it, uh, whatever they reveal or don't. And Ian, when you wrote the when you wrote the novel, when you conceived of it first, was it a love story at its heart, a complicated love story? Or were you sitting down to write something about the state of the world and its possible future? Or was it all those things? What, I guess I'm asking, what was the germ of the idea? It, it became, it sort of became all of those things. It, it started uh, in, in a sort of simple way. It started with, a, with an image and an idea of this couple uh, living in a, in a remote farmhouse. Um, I, I had basically, there were two things that led me to start writing the story. One was um, my brother works in the space realm and um, I've, I'd always wanted to use him as a, as a resource to write about space somehow. I didn't know how I would do that. And the second thing was um, I had been attending an, uh, an award ceremony for a writer 
And when he won his award, he thanked his wife. And he did so in such a way, he said something like, I, I just would like to thank Jane for being my support all these years. And something about it in the moment caught my ear. And I thought, that sounds, I, I didn't love how that, how it sounded. Because to me, I started thinking about Jane and what is her thing? You know, it's not just to be his, uh, it's not just to support to prop up his genius for all those years. I'm sure she had other interests. And so I started thinking about that and how sometimes within relationships, you know, narratives can be written. And then we start to sometimes mm. believe those things. And so I, I started writing about that type of marriage and it felt confining to me in this house. And so I realized then as I started to expand out from that house, that space was the opposite of that, which is literally endless. And so I kind of realized okay, this might also be my space book, even if it just might be a metaphor. Fascinating. And Garth, back to you, just on the central casting, if I can, you know, to have one Irish Oscar nominee is great, but, you know, to have two is just showing off, as Oscar Wilde might say or something. <laughs> but they're, they're both brilliant, Paul uh, uh, and Saoirse, and I'm not just saying that because they're my, my countrymen and women, but were, were they the two you wanted all along? Were they in your mind's eye? Uh, no, I, I didn't. I didn't imagine those two, um, but it made complete sense when I came across them. Of course, um, they are not just extraordinary actors; they're beautiful human beings, um, and such a gorgeous match. You know, there's so much alchemy and 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 kind of um, chemistry on set, and also there's deep love and respect. Um, so, I mean, I'm the luckiest director in the world to have, you know, helped put that together and see these guys, you know in such intimate and profound ways. It was, it was, I mean, it was amazing. Yeah. And, and I have to say, you know, there's so much talk about accents in, in, <laughs> yeah. it's particularly when Irish people go to do things and our American people do Irish accents or whatever, but their accents are absolutely pitch perfect. I thought. Yes. I've been down that road many times online, you know, Dev Patel had to do an Australian yeah. accent. Um, look, I, I basically, I cast, Emotionally and spiritually, I, I pick the best human being for the job, um, and then obviously mm. sometimes there, there is an accent you have to deal with. Um, but these guys are, are very professional, and they did their homework. So yeah, it was um, it was it was great. I didn't even think about the accent to be honest. Yeah. when we're working. Okay, well may, may, maybe that's the key to it. And, and Ian, like in terms of being the co-writer in this, you know, you're you're you you begin life as a novelist. Were, were you on the set for this? Did you travel to Australia and and or is that not necessary? Well, I I, I will say that Garth ended up coming to Canada uh, when we first started. Uh, he came from Australia mm -hmm. all the way to to rural Ontario, uh, the area where I I grew up and live, and we spent some time driving around there. We met some farmers, um, we toured a few old farmhouses. Um, we just were talking about the story and what we were gonna, what we were gonna work on. And, and in that trip, um, we actually drove by an old, what looked like a deserted farmhouse and Garth said, stop. And we pulled over, got out and we both kind of looked at each other and said, that looks like their house. Um, and so we felt really mm -hmm. excited by that. And, and that sort of launched us on this journey of working on the screenplay. Uh, Garth went back to Australia. I stayed in, in rural Ontario and we kind of wrote back and forth. When the, the filming started and at that point it had been decided it would be in Australia, um, I was set to come down. Um, I, I, I had my ticket, everything was booked was really looking forward to it. I, I'm not a uh, experienced traveler, so it took me, you know, a little bit of time to build up the nerve to make that long trip. And right sort of the day before I was set to go, uh, a couple people on set uh, came down with COVID. This was still during the height of COVID. So the production yeah. was kind of stalled and s stopped for a few days. And I realized at that point, it's probably better if I don't, uh, if I don't arrive and potentially bring COVID to more people. And so I just, at that point decided not to, and I followed along every day, uh, from home uh, on zoom. And it was just such an exciting experience, even, even from afar. And Garth, just, I was a great admirer of top of the lake, uh, particularly the first season. I, I just thought it was compelling TV and we don't see enough, you know, Antipodean drama, let's say, in the, in this part of the world, f for various reasons. Is that show one you hold very dear in terms of all you've done in your working life? Oh, look, yeah, Top of the Lake was um, such a amazing experience. Um, 
you know, working with Jane and I felt a huge responsibility to honour her vision as well. Um, but it, it definitely gave me a, an intro into working with, you know, amazing actors, you know, like Holly Hunter and, of course, mm. uh, Peter Mullen, all those guys, Elizabeth Moss. Um, and I guess that was um, – I really got to spread my wings um, and I really enjoyed that experience. But, um, you know, everything I do, um, the actors are – for me, the heart of everything that I, I, I love to do and what I try to get on screen and, um, and also the landscape. So I just felt very at home with Faux, um, you know, like top of the lake, um, you know, pushing the boundaries of, of the human condition and, and kind of really unexpected scenes and, and obviously the landscape. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. Well, listen, lovely to talk to you both. Gareth, I'm sorry again I got your name wrong. I'm going to beat myself oh, up please. long and hard all day. <laughs> about Just it. relax, man. It's all good. It's no problem. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you for your support. Gareth Davis there, the director, who I was apologising to for getting his name wrong because I called him Gareth, uh, talking to me about the movie he directed, Foe. And you also heard me talking there to the writer of the novel that it was based on, Ian Reid there, who wrote the novel Foe. And that is in cinemas from this Friday, the 20th of October. Up next, the one and only Phil Jupitus on his favourite movie. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks, TV and Movie Show. Now, I mentioned last week that we hadn't done the favourite movie slot in a while, but we came back with a bang when we interviewed John Banville, Booker Prize winner John Banville, about his favourite movie. And this week, we're not slouching either, because if there was a Booker Prize for comedy, I'm sure my next guest would have won it. Ahead of his appearance at this year's Go Away Comedy Festival around the bank holiday weekend is the one and only Phil Jupitus. Phil, hi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, John. How are you? Very well. So listen, I've been doing this show four and a half years. We've had to ban some like It Hot and The Shawshank Redemption. Some movies get chosen over and over again. In a month of Sundays, I never would have guessed that this was your favourite film. So will you tell our listeners what it is and why, please? Uh, My favourite film is, and I must be very precise here, because there are two versions of it. Uh, my favourite film is the 1967 um, uh, version of uh, Bedazzled, a comedy film. Uh, it's basically Peter Cook and Dudley Moore's uh, take on the Faust uh, legend and um, uh, the uh, you know the the mortal that does a deal with the devil for a better life. Mm. And um, yeah, and it was directed by Stanley Donan, who directed Singing in the Rain. So it's a real strange collision of uh, you know of these odd types, you know, making uh, making this extraordinary film. And Dudley Moore is this kind of lowly uh, uh, restaurant. He's working in a wimpy restaurant, if I'm he not mistaken. He's called Stanley Moon, and he's uh, he's a short order chef, and he's in love with Eleanor Bron, and who's the waitress at his restaurant. And he just she's got a, a boyfriend with a smart sixty sports car who goes zipping everywhere around uh, swinging London. I mean, it's it's a classic kind of you know that that. that, that it's it's a bit like anyone who um, has seen any of the Austin Powers films. Yeah. The style of filmmaking is what Mike Myers was lampooning in the Austin Powers films, which is a, a very sort of snappy, jazzy soundtrack. I mean, the soundtrack was was done by Dudley Moore himself. Um, and uh, but the the visuals, uh, the the clothes that they wear, the London they're driving through, it's the places they go. It's 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 like discotheques and uh, these sort of you know swinging London pads and things. But the London they they're driving through is still kind of broken in the wake of the Second World War. There's still like these building sites and empty lots and and buildings that have been bombed. And so it's a it's an incredible snapshot. Of Britain in 1967, it's it's an extraordinary thing. Yeah, and of course, you know, a lot of comedians like yourself adore Moore and Cook, uh, and they had this, they had this, you know, strange, wonderful relationship in lots of ways. Is that part of the appeal of this for you? The two of them at the height of their yeah, powers, kind of. Yeah, I think there is this odd sort of. Um, I don't think Cook and Moore get their due. I think loads of comedians cite, uh, um, you know, Peter. As, as you know, and and Peter was very, very much the driving force of that. He was the creative one, but without Dudley there, without Dudley as that kind of foil, that lowly foil, you know, the, the they 
it doesn't work in the same way. I mean, the the funny thing is, is as they progressed through their career, and it got a little bit more edgy and strange and spiteful with Derek and Clive, you know, and more obscene as well. But yeah. but this point here in '67, so they're coming off the back of having done Beyond the Fringe on Broadway. You know, uh, it's like one of the biggest things. They're they're also they're also making not only but also uh, their their BBC series. So they're making uh, sketch comedy. In fact, one bit from not only but also uh, features again in um, features again in in the film, which is the which is the nuns on the trampolines. I presume you were very. When did you first see this? Actually. Um, well, I, I reckon that I was sort of in my early teens and it was on telly yeah. and I saw it with my friend Brian and we became instantly sort of obsessed with it. Um, and then, of course, when you get a video, I was trying to find it, but it didn't come out on, on VHS for ages. Yeah. And it was the same when DVDs came out. You know, it was at the back of the queue. <laughs> and uh, funnily enough, I, I did go online to see if I could find a dvd of bedazzled and you can if you shop around but some of them are incredibly expensive it's a real sort of niche film i mean i, I bought the original um uh film poster uh from c7 okay. uh which let me tell you 20 years ago cost me 400 quid so um Oof. i don't know what it's worth now but um well, you're not selling it, though, so... <laughs> I am not, John. I am not. Yeah. And then just as, you know, the, the the devil, you know, guy that Hook is in this, I presume you think he works. He's successful as this villainous, you know, Satan. Well, it is such a perfect sort of parody of Cook and Moore's relationship because Dudley, yeah. Dudley, unbelievably talented, unbelievably bright, but he sort of became famous as Peter Cook's sidekick. So he he did this deal where he allowed himself to sort of be subservient to Cook to achieve fame. So it was a weird mirror of their real relationship. And, and Cook, as the devil, is absolutely perfect because he's so flat and, like, sort of bored with it you know the 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 legend of you know of satan being god's favorite angel and then being cast down he plays it in this sort of like a civil servant that got demoted or something (laughs) and also he's called george spigot and the idea that satan's real name is george spigot I, i i that just really there's so much in it that i find so engaging you know i funnily enough about Three years ago, I was walking through Soho in London, and over the street, I saw Eleanor Brom. Right. Every fibre of my being wanted to go over and say, you know, I, I just want you to know how much Bedazzled, your performance in Bedazzled meant to me. Because she plays she plays seven such completely different characters. I mean, you, you need to see it. You know, it's, it's basically he's given uh, um, the deal that he does with the devil. He's given these wishes to get the girl of his dreams. And every time it goes wrong. And so you need, you know, you need to kind of see it to pick up that vibe of it. But my favorite, my favorite kind of bit is, is Dudley Moore asked to be a pop star. And so he appears on a kind of version of Top of the Pops in black and white. And he sings this amazing song called Love Me, which is really this beautiful sort of 60s jazz beat number. And then, you know, uh, Eleanor Bronze in the front row screaming at him and he thinks, oh, this is it, I'm going to get her. And then Peter Cook comes on uh, as um, as this this really weird <laughs> guy who sings a song called uh, called Bedazzled. And the, the lyrics of the song are, I don't need you. I don't care. You fill me with inertia. And of course, you know, that unavailability is really what is much more of a turn on than someone saying, love me, you know. So, so he, he loses her to, um, to this other, uh, to the other pop star. Yeah, I actually saw it on TV when I was a child as well. RTE used to show those kind of movies yeah. uh, late night on a Saturday. Tell me this, just in closing on that, I presume the fact that you were saying this is the one from 1967, you have mm. little time for the Brendan Fraser remake from 2000, I, I think. I, I kind of went to see it because I felt that I should yeah. go and see it. And it was just... I think the thing is... I'm the, because I've heard people talk about it uh, in very sort of glowing terms, but this is people 
that didn't grow up with the original. So I think that it's a slap in the face. It takes too many liberties. You could do a much, you could have done a much better version of it. I see how cute and clever that the um, that the directors are being by casting Liz Hurley as the devil, and it's a smart idea. But but you know, Bedazzled is such a classic, and it, and it's it's a Peter Cook and Dudley Moore film, you know, and and Stanley Donan's hand at the tiller. It's really strange, but it does give it this odd sort of Hollywood sheen, and it's such a strange mishmash of you've got london at a perfect time uh, culturally you've got this guy towards the end of his career stanley donan you've got cook and mora just blowing up and these diverse and different factors all collide and make that's what makes it unique whereas you know the the remake that uh with brendan fraser yeah you know and he's a great actor you've got to love him he's fantastic but it just sort to me it doesn't work, but yeah. I am stupidly biased, John, because Bedazzled is my favourite film. So of yeah. course I'm gonna like a remake. The remake could be the best thing since sliced bread next time. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you, I hear you. Well, look, it's a wonderful choice uh, and, and beautifully described. Tell Thank me you. this, Phil. Uh, you know, I was just reminding myself about your career, and sometimes, you know, you've been doing lots of things for a long time. These things kind of fall into the sands of time and they become hearsay. But in terms of when you started out, I read this great quote this morning when you started kind of as a performance poet that you said something along the lines, the only reason you did it, because you were you were a support act for the Style Council and Billy Bragg, two brilliant yeah. musicians and bands. And you said, really, if I'm being honest, the only reason I did it was because I wanted to meet Billy Bragg and Paul Weller, which seems like a great reason for me. But was that you being humorous in an interview 20 years ago, or do you no, still stand I mean, by that? I mean, it's a major motivation, you know. To, 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 <laughs> certainly, you know, that was, that was in there. That was in the mix. Yeah. You know, I got involved with, you know, like sort of doing benefit gigs and things because the causes were worthy. But there's no denying that, you know, getting to meet Paul Weller is a little bit of a, a little bit of a kind of encouragement as well. So, um, yeah, yeah, slightly, slightly. It, it it was a joke with truth in it. And, John, all the best jokes have truth in them. Indeed they do. Indeed they do. Listen, at Galway this year, you're going to be the artist in residence, which is yeah. which is kind of funny. And and it's it's not ironic, but tell us what that actually means. You're actually going to be sketching, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna be going around the gigs, uh sort of uh, doing some uh drawing, uh and also uh gonna make some collages, but I'm not sure the mechanic of how we're gonna do that because it's it's there's a lot of equipment and you I'm gonna get drink spilt on things but um i'm i'm doing uh the sketches of people i'm doing collages i'm doing my own uh portraits of members of the audience uh under uh, but they're called dislikenesses and i do, so i do drawings of people which i absolutely guarantee look nothing like you so that's that's what you that's what you get is a, a solid guarantee from Phil Jupiter that the drawing I do will look nothing like you. So uh, yeah, come and have a dislikeness done. Uh, yeah. Or so- yeah. Um, and uh, on the Sunday, I'm going to be um, um, doing um, in the Roshan Dove. I'm going to be doing um, drawings of uh, Barry Murphy. I'm going to interview him while I draw him, uh, and uh, and I'm hoping. I'm hoping, and you're going to have to uh, check with this after I come off the line. I'm hoping to get the uh, TikToker Garen Noon along uh, okay. from uh, from Mayo, and I'm hoping to uh, draw and chat with him as well. A very engaging young man, so I'm looking forward to that. Brilliant. And that's all at this year's uh, Galway Comedy Festival, which runs from Tuesday the 24th to Monday the 30th of October. Just in closing then, Phil, and I'll let you go to, to prepare for all that you have ahead of you. Thank but you. sketching, right? You know, you went back to college a few years ago and did a degree in fine art. And, you know, I don't want to say you retired from comedy or whatever, but one thing I've noticed in this slot, because I interview a lot of comedians, is Mm. they didn't enjoy school. Like I would say like nine out of ten of them kind of just couldn't wait to get out of school, particularly secondary school. And I was thinking about you this morning going back to college. Now, I know it was fine art, but it was still the discipline of a university degree in your early 50s, I think it was. Like, 
did you hate school? I mean, I don't want to be pejorative. Oh, well, I, I mean, it's uh, if we start this conversation, John, we'll still be talking in an hour. Okay, um, okay. Uh, but uh, the, short answer is, <laughs> the short answer is I was not a fan, no. Yeah. Uh, and there are actually uh, reasons for that that I've subsequently found out why I wasn't okay. good at school. So uh, um, it's strange, really, that you, you go through life and you go, oh, God, I was lazy, I didn't take to things, this, that, and the other. And then you find out that there's underlying reasons and you weren't lazy. It's just your brain worked differently. And yeah. then and it's just uh, uh, the British educational system wasn't coped to deal with that, you know. Yeah. Um, neurodiversity in the classroom was ignored uh, throughout the years. And so um, um, bright kids, and I, I, I'm, so, I'm, I'm not being big-headed, but I was bright but you get left by the wayside if you don't have a conventional way of thinking and don't just do what they tell you. Yeah. And I, and I didn't know that. And I, and I don't mean to pry, but, but finally then like, do you consider yourself neurodiverse as much as we all are, I suppose? Um, yeah. 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 I do very much. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then I keep saying finally, but this finally, but was it then joyful to be back studying art in a much different environment then? Well, where, well where, if you I, knew who I'm, you were kind of. Yeah. I've got to say, I mean, I'm, I am actually still at uni now, John, I'm just in oh. my final year at the moment. So, oh, um, wow. okay. So, um, the, the, the unfortunate thing was that I did catch the pandemic while I was at uni. So I got, I got caught in the middle of that. So I, I haven't had, the full university experience. But uh, the first year, uh, which wasn't uh, hit by the pandemic, uh, my foundation year, it was one of the best years of my life. Absolutely. Mm. No yeah. two ways about it. Well, listen, it's clear from these questions I could talk to you all day, but I better let you go. His favourite movie is unquestionably Bedazzled from 1967. Phil <laughs> Jupiter, a real pleasure. Thanks a million. John, thank you so much. I want a miracle. Rain of toads or something. All right, then. Which of the cheap tricks is it going to be? Wine into water, stick into serpent. How about flying through space at the speed of light? How about you checking into the nearest loony bin for a few weeks' holiday? Oh, ye of little faith, Moon. You're not wearing nylon underwear, are you? Why? It disintegrates at high speeds. Prepare yourself. The magic words, LBJ. Here, my ice lolly's melted. You really must be the devil. Incarnate. How do you do? Oh, how do you do? A clip there from the 1960s version of Bedazzled. And you heard me talking there to Phil Jupitus. Uh, delighted to talk to Phil about all sorts of things there outside of Bedazzled. And Phil will be doing all sorts of things at this year's Galway Comedy Festival. And you can find out more on galwaycomedyfestival.ie. All sorts of people at it this year, including Rich Hall, who I absolutely love. So do check that out. That is it for this week. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Anne-Marie Kane, who helped out on the show. Just remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. If you want to get in touch with me at any stage during the week, John underscore Friday is my Twitter handle or you can email me screentime at Newstalk.com. Enjoy the remainder of your weekend. Have a safe week ahead and I'll talk to you all next week.